You're listening to Foreseeable, a production of Globalization, the flagship digital platform of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Each episode, we invite an expert for a conversation relating to their field of study or experience and to find out what they foresee happening in the future. James Crabtree has been the Mumbai Bureau Chief for the Financial Times, a senior policy advisor in the UK Prime Minister's Strategy Unit, and was a Fulbright Scholar at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Today, the journalist and author is an associate professor in practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. His latest book, The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age, takes an in-depth look at the billionaire class in a radically unequal society, where the country's top 1% now own nearly 60% of its wealth. I asked him how he first became interested in the subject. I lived in Mumbai in India for five years, and... I covered the financial markets, companies, businesses, and I became fascinated by the world of the Indian super-rich. When I moved to Mumbai in 2011, I could see this enormous wealth being created, particularly at the very top of Indian society, a country that traditionally people think of as being quite poor, but it now has some of the richest people in the world. The, the richest person in Asia, Mukesh Ambani, is, a, is an Indian, and he has an extraordinary home that is a towering skyscraper in downtown Mumbai that I used to drive past. And so both the, the topic of how this wealth was being created, was it being created honestly through the creation of competitive businesses, or was it being created through crony capitalism, began to interest me a lot. And then subsequent to that, the question of what this was doing to Indian society, and particularly the question you raise about inequality. I suppose the point that I tried to make in the book was that I think it's quite hard for people to understand that inequality can be rising in a country like India, because we all think of India as a very unequal country to begin with. Um, That's partly financially unequal, because there are still you know, tens of millions of people at least uh, who fall below the very minimum poverty line, but also unequal in other ways, inequalities of caste, of religion, of region, of language. And so India seems to be a very stratified country um, for all of its many strengths. And I think that's made it hard to see that over the last 20 or 30 years, as India has re-engaged with globalization in a very rapid way, after its reopening economically in 1991, but particularly, as I argue in my book, The Billionaire Raj, from the mid-2000s, the era of peak globalization before the financial crisis, that India became much more financially unequal. So everybody was doing reasonably well, including at the bottom, but the top did best of all by miles, um, and particularly those at the very top. And so that was how I came at this problem of inequality. Um, What did it mean for India that it was becoming much, much more unequal as the top raced away from everybody else? Mm -hmm. And then what did you find? Um, Let's just, the first question that you were thinking of, is it due to honest competition or crony capitalism? It's a mixture of both. Um, So you do get in India... Uh, entrepreneurs who have built world-class businesses in areas like IT services or generic pharmaceuticals or some of the parts of the automotive supply chain, those people, as in other countries, when they globalize their businesses, often get very, very rich. And so that's one of the things that globalization does that creates wealth. It means that if you, as has been the case all over Asia, if you can create a successful exporting business, then that is a route to 
a huge financial success. And there's no particular problem with that. Um, but India also clearly does have problems of crony capitalism. And so there were a number of sectors that with close ties to the government, mining, telecommunications, property, uh, industrial development, where a good portion of the money that was being earned by these tycoons was coming because they had good connections with government. Now, that's not unique to India. It's true in many Asian economies, including some of the most successful, like South Korea, that this period of early industrialization in which countries are moving from being rural and underdeveloped to being urban and much more developed often does come with a degree of crony capitalism in which the political and business elite work in and out of each other's pockets. Um, but that did create problems in India. So as long as, as well as the problem of rising inequality, there have been problems of huge corruption scandals um, that had broken in India around the time that I arrived in the country and the after effects are still being felt today. Is this problem being addressed? Is it recognized as a problem domestically in India? Are political parties making this a, a campaign issue? So India's Prime Minister is Narendra Modi, who just won another thumping re-election. He won his first election victory in 2014. And the reason he won that election victory was in part that he came to embody a great upswell of public anger about corruption. And so the, the period that I write about initially in the Billionaire Raj, the middle of the 2000s, the boom years, saw as happened in other Asian economies when they boomed, for instance, before the Asian financial crisis in the mid-90s, saw a lot of corners being cut, a lot of favours being uh, given. And in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, and for some other reasons that were unique to India, before the 2014 election, you had this slew of corruption scandals, and Modi capitalized on that, and it came into office as somebody who was promising clean government, an end to corruption, and to crack down on the nefarious influence of some of these big business tycoons, who for a while, in the 2000s, um, were giving India a reputation which wasn't that different from Russia. The idea that that, that Mumbai, uh, the financial capital, owned Delhi, the political capital, um, that the tycoons were really in charge and that the government was in their pocket. I, I think that has rebalanced a little bit under Modi's years. Um, he has um, reasserted the power of politics, and he himself has never really been questioned as a personally honest leader. But there are all sorts of reasons why it was unrealistic to think that India would jump away from this period of um, questionable governance to be able to develop a, a sort of Danish or Singapore-style model of corruption-free governance. It's very, very hard to do that. And so there's still plenty of problems of governance and corruption in India that will take generation to work out. How about their taxation system you know, as far as redistribution of wealth and the honesty or the effectiveness of their government tax system? The big problem with the Indian tax system is not enough people pay tax. So the way the Indian economy is structured, you do have this creamy layer at the top um, where you have people working in, you know, in Bangalore and in Hyderabad in world-leading technology companies. But the number of people who actually pay income tax is very tiny. This is a country of 1.3 million people, and estimates vary. But sorry, billion, right? 1.3 billion, sorry. Um, but estimates vary. Maybe, let's say, 20 million people pay income tax. And so what that tells you is 20 million people have a kind of tax-paying white-collar job in a city – and a huge proportion of the economy um, is in a, a sort of grey middle area. And so India's tax system is reasonably progressive, 
Um, it could probably be slightly more progressive at, at the very top end. But the real challenge is formalizing the economy and getting lots more people into the tax system so that you're earning more in tax that can then be spread around more fairly. And what about the condition of people at the bottom of the economic scale? At the bottom, India is doing much better. If you look at surveys of support for globalization, then countries in emerging Asia, particularly poorer countries like India or Vietnam, tend to be the most positive about the last 20 or 30 years of globalization. And that's because for most people in India, they have done a good deal better. And so this leads to a debate in India, where, where some people say, well, as long as the people at the bottom are doing okay, it doesn't really matter what happens at the top, as long as the, the rising tide is lifting all boats. The argument that I tried to make was that actually the gap between the top and the bottom does matter, um, that if you look at countries that, as they develop, become very, very unequal, um, you know, the bottom, the poorest earn a little bit more and the rich take most of it, then that's a pattern that you see in Latin America, in South Africa, in some of the most unequal countries in the world. And there's been a lot of good research in the aftermath of the financial crisis, which suggests that that's not the best way to develop economically. And it's in stark contrast to what happened in East Asia, where countries like Japan, um, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, in their earlier stages of development, had a very egalitarian a model of development, and that seems to be a better thing to aim for. So none of these countries are going to be like Denmark. I mean, we're not talking about egalitarian socialism here, but I think given how unequal India now has become, and it is one of the most unequal countries in Asia quite early in its development path, the risk is that if it continues to develop in the same way, it's going to become hugely unequal as it gets richer, and that's very difficult to turn around later. Just look at Brazil and South Africa. Once you have these huge gaps between the rich and everybody else, it's very difficult to close that later on. Is there anything that's being done right now that makes you think that they can close that gap? I don't. My book is not a pessimistic book. I mean, I think the, the subtitle of my book, it's called The Billionaire Raj, a journey through India's new gilded age. And so I make a specific comparison with the United States um, in the late 19th century after the Civil War, the era of robber baron capitalism and corrupt cronyistic uh, city government in, in cities like New York and Chicago. There was a time in the history of the United States, or let's say the United Kingdom in the 1820s or South Korea in the 1960s, where you would think that these countries were just irredeemable, where the rich were making out like bandits, the political class was utterly corrupt. And then, you know, over a 20, 30, 40 year period, good governance can have a remarkable effect. And, and so you had following the Gilded Age in the United States, the progressive era, where all sorts of different types of progressive reforms of the sort that we might advocate at the Lee Kuan Yew School were introduced, and it made a great difference. And I think the same is perfectly true in India. There are things that need to happen across all fronts. So India is trying to introduce more basic public services to support those who are um, at the bottom of society, you know, better health care, better basic education systems to help people move off farms and work in jobs in manufacturing or in the service sector. That's very important. So is building state capacity, try, trying to improve 
um, the workings of India's government, which, which is patchy at best. It's very good in some levels right at the centre, but often completely absent um, in other areas. I mentioned the tax system, so formalising the tax system, expanding the tax base. There's a myriad of things that need to happen, but I don't think one should be too pessimistic about it just because India is going through this phase of early economic development, which often comes with and has come in other countries with these these issues. How would you characterize India, the way they reacted after the global financial crisis and kind of after the boom days? What what did you see from your vantage point? It's a slightly contradictory story because on the one hand, India escaped the worst of the financial crisis and, and was quite pleased about its governance model because of that. There was a sense that India had a quite conservative model um, of banking regulation, for instance, and that that had helped it avoid some of the worst of what happened in America or Britain or Iceland. I think that turned out to be a little bit complacent because what had happened in the years prior to the financial crisis, not directly related to what happened in the crash in the UK and the US, but very intimately related to the pattern of hyper-globalization that, that swept across the world, was that suddenly Indian companies were able to borrow lots and lots of money, more than they'd ever been able to borrow before. They also had lots of foreign investment coming into the country. People were very excited about India as an investment destination, and so that meant there was money to be had and to be spent on all sorts of things. But the governance systems which regulated all of that, be that the way the banks lent money themselves or the way in which particular industries invested, were very poor – And the result of that was the same as happened in Southeast Asia in the mid-90s, that there was a huge speculative investment boom, lots of money was siphoned away, the banks uh, lent money that they shouldn't have lent and didn't get it back. And so in the years after the financial crisis, there was a reckoning um, with this in which suddenly uh, all these companies couldn't pay, particularly industrial companies, companies building steel mills and roads and dams and power stations suddenly began to admit that they couldn't pay back all the money that they'd borrowed, they couldn't build the things that they'd promised. And India is still today working its way out of this problem of bad debt that has weighed down the balance sheets of the conglomerates that make up the backbone of the country's industrial economy and the public sector banks, which are the heart of its banking system. And so India's development path and the the promise that it has to become a a future superpower, a a great economic power in Asia, for the moment, is being held back really by the the hangover that followed this this wild boom that happened in the mid to late 2000s. Mm -hmm. Speaking of industry, Modi had this huge push, his Make in India campaign, and I know they spent quite a lot of money on trying to get people to move their factory to India. Most of the uh, comments have been fairly critical that it hasn't paid off. Do you have an opinion on the Make in India campaign? And and was Modi's effort in a way to, to address that problem that you just described? It's a slightly separate issue, but a very important one. So when you think about economic development in Asia, most of the success stories have followed a particular model. So Singapore, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, the Asian tigers, all of them specialized to some degree in export-focused manufacturing. It's a very efficient way of taking people from 
farm labor, moving them into low-skill factories, and then gradually you move up the the value chain. So you start out with toys and garments, and then you go to semiconductors and then more advanced materials. And in a sense, that's one of the ways that Asia has become rich very rapidly. India has a problem in this respect. So if you look at China, China followed that path almost perfectly. But India has a very traditionally weak manufacturing sector for all sorts of reasons and isn't very good Um, at exporting, except in certain sectors like automotive. And so Modi recognized this, and he launched this big glitzy campaign called Make in India to try and both boost Indian domestic manufacturing, but to invite in foreign global manufacturers to use India as a base, as they have done for China for most of the last 20 years. And so that was a good idea. I mean, it was one of the best ideas that Modi had. And in a sense, it's very much still a good idea because, in fact, maybe even more so now with the trade war between the US and China, it should be the case that India is the big winner from that process, that lots of the um, manufacturing that has been in China from European, Japanese, American companies should be moving to India. It's the perfect time, but it isn't, or it isn't in very large numbers. And that's partly because while Modi had a high-profile marketing campaign for Made in India, many of the underlying issues which make it hard for large global companies to set up labor-intensive factories in India have not yet been solved. It's hard to get land, very hard to hire people, hard to just get bureaucratic say-sos and ticks in boxes. A little bit easier than it used to be, but not easy enough to suddenly convince the, 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 the apples and foxcons of this world to move lock stock from China to India. And so this remains a big challenge for India because one of the main routes to fast inclusive development um, in India isn't working quite as well as it has in other countries. That brings us back to governance, which you've mentioned a few times already. What, what do you think is the prospect for improving governance in India? You have two different things going on here. You have, as I mentioned, an issue about the, the probity of governance, the honesty is there, corruption, and then you have the capacity of governance. And so there's a lot of literature about what's called state capacity. So if you look at China, lots of corruption in China, but you have a state with very high capacity. It's able to get things done, even though there is corruption. India's problem is that its government has had a corruption problem, but a lot of the time it has quite low state capacity. And state capacity is positively associated with all sorts of good things in um, rapid development. It's very hard to, to develop quickly if you don't have high-quality public institutions and if you don't have high state capacity. The Indian government is something of a contradiction. If you meet civil servants from the heart of India's government in New Delhi, they're some of the smartest and most capable people that you'll ever meet in public service. Brilliant minds dealing with extraordinary problems, Um And there are some parts of the Indian state which function very well. It has a reasonably good central bank, has some public institutions. The upper levels of the court system work pretty well. But there are all sorts of problems. At the lower level, the state is often absent. There are huge problems in the provision of basic services like healthcare and primary education. The Indian government is in lots of areas where it probably shouldn't be. So it runs a very bad airline. It still owns a whole bunch of rather hopeless banks and industrial businesses that it, it probably shouldn't own in the way that it does. And so there are all sorts of ways in which improving the capacity of the Indian state to operate, investing in that um, offer a very high returns in terms of India's potential future development.
the individual states in India have quite a bit of power as well. Is that is that another issue that some states are doing better than others, or maybe um, playing ball better than others? Yes. So India is a federal system. It has twenty nine states, of which maybe a dozen are significant from an economic point of view. That that are either large or they're coastal. They have more of the exporting industries. And so India is um, a very diverse country in all sorts of ways, but particularly the south and west of the country is, you know, richer and more prosperous, more connected to the global economy, more like Southeast Asia. And then the north and east of the economy is much poorer, tends to be landlocked, has worse governance. Um, In a sense, the way that people hope this will work is that this is a bit like what they talk about in the United States, that the states become laboratories of democracy in which the best pioneer new systems of working and the others then copy them. And there's a bit of that um, in in India, but perhaps not as much as, as there, there could be. But certainly the diversity of India's states uh, is an opportunity. It provides a, a bed for innovation, but it's also a challenge, particularly for foreign investors, because one of the problems that you face in India is that the regime that you have in Tamil Nadu, for instance, one of the industrial states in the south, can be quite different from Uttar Pradesh, the most populous state in the northern heartlands. And so it's just an extra level of complexity, both in running India's government, if you're Narendra Modi, but also investing in India, if you happen to be a big foreign investor. Mm-hmm. What do you foresee happening, let's just say in the next five to ten years, as far as inequality in India? In the book, I tried to be fair and optimistic and to say that there is no particular reason why India cannot follow a reasonably rapid development path. The fact that it is in a position that looks troubling with this recent history of corruption, rising inequality, and a state that has quite low capacity doesn't necessarily mean that it can't fix that. And indeed, India has some advantages because it's going last. Not just all of the rich countries, the you know America and Germany and Japan, but more recently Asian countries like Malaysia or China provide it with templates. And so it has much more to look at to see what's working. That said, I think it's almost certainly unrealistic to expect that India can do anything like what China did. China has had this extraordinary period, uh, which is now ending, but for 30 years it was growing at 10% a year or more. That has been a very unusual economic phenomenon that almost no other country has managed to to copy in in human history. And so I think India's development path is going to be uh, more more up and down, partly because of the kind of country that India is. It's a democracy. It has particular problems it has to challenge. But also the global environment is now slightly less friendly to India. China pro- prospered in the, the era of rapid, unfettered globalization. India is now going to have to come of age in an era in which the US and China, the world's two most important economies, are fighting with one another. And that's sort of playing havoc with all sorts of issues. So I think... There isn't any particular reason why India, if it makes the right decisions, can't have a very bright future ahead of it. But the global environment and, to some extent, there are complexities of the Indian system mean that that's not a given. What about climate change? Because that's a question that I think has to be applied to everything at this point looking in the future. I I would suspect that India has quite a big vulnerability to climate change. and, And how do you think that they will cope with that? 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. It's not something I dealt with in the book, and it's something I felt rather guilty about, because I think in the future, everyone will judge us for whether or not we thought seriously about this. I mean, India is critical to the global challenge um, of the climate crisis. If India develops on a carbon-intensive path that is comparable to China, then without wanting to be too dramatic, we're all doomed. Um, And so given where India is at, in the early stage of its development at something like $2,000 per capita, if uh, it doesn't pioneer a new low-carbon development path in all sorts of different ways, then it's going to be incredibly difficult to meet um, anything close to the two-degree warming target. Um, That said, that can provide some cause for optimism in in terms of simply doing things differently. If you look at solar power in India, um, and the the rollout of solar power, um, it, it's been a very impressive story. One of the most um, impressive developments under Modi, the rapid rollout of solar and the price at which solar um, can now be produced has exceeded people's expectations. But as you say, India is very vulnerable to climate change. I mean, it has coastal low-lying cities. Uh, it, it's very um, reliant on water from four or five very large rivers um, which create geopolitical conflicts from its neighbours. Its population is poor. It's the classic case of the problem with climate that although countries like Singapore are going to struggle, they have hundreds of billions of dollars to spend on sea defences and helping their populations adapt. India, although it has many fewer abjectly poor people than it used to, is going to struggle with that. And it also, at the same time as coping with climate, is coping with a rapid process of urbanization in which two and three hundred million people roughly are going to move from villages to cities in the next 20 or 30 years. And and so I think the way the world should think about this is that India is a really mission-critical um, battleground in the challenge of globalization and that working with India by providing partnerships, developing new technologies, providing money um, is is going to be one of the most important things that we can do uh, if we're going to have much hope of, of meeting the challenge of climate change. So now that being said, are, are you still cautiously optimistic about uh, India's prospects? Yeah, cautiously optimistic. I mean, I, I think you don't want to be, you don't want to underestimate the size of the challenge, whether that is on climate or urbanization or governance, all of these things are what some of my colleagues in the school call wicked problems. They're incredibly difficult to solve. They're multifaceted. It's not entirely clear even to smart people um, in schools like our own exactly what the answer should be. Nonetheless, I go back to the example of history that that the, the example of previous developing economies, be that here in Singapore or around Asia or in the West, is that uh, development can happen much more quickly than you think. And uh, while it's hard for public policy to change a lot in the short term, from one year to the next, it often seems the levers that you pull are ineffective. From one decade to the next, good public policy can have a dramatic effect on um, the way that countries develop. Um, And so for that reason, I think you have to be cautiously optimistic that a country like India can achieve its potential. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. If you'd like to subscribe to the Globalization newsletter, look for the link in the description or find us on Facebook at Global is Asian.